0: About 15 years ago, I was teaching a psychology course. I taught a couple of psychology courses at Oakland City College. And I was teaching a basic 101 course. And I remember one student who was a very good student in most of the other classes that he took. And he was flunking psychology. And it wasn't that he didn't have the brains. He had the brains and I kept handing these tests back to him with lousy grades, and he'd look at them and'd kind of grin and just go on. Well, he was just borderline D, and uh, he took the final, which was 25 percent of the grade. And at the end of the final, <clears throat> the next day in class, I allowed the students who wanted to to come forward and look at their final grade. I'd averaged them out. And I remember remember when you were in college and you had to wait for like three weeks to get your, oh, it was awful. Wasn't that excruciating? And it came and you didn't want to open it up and all that kind of stuff. Well, I didn't want to put these people through that. So I said, you can come forward and, and look at your grade if you like. And sure enough, he came forward and I just showed him his number grade. It was a, uh, I don't know, like a 68 or something like that. He turned to absolute action, totally white. He said, that means I flunked. I said, yeah, that's what that means. He said, I, I can't. That's impossible. I said, why is that impossible? He said, because this is a pipeline course. Everybody knows it's a pipeline course. It's always been a pipeline course. This was the first year I taught it. I said, what do you mean pipeline course? He said, you know, one of those things that if you're in it, you get through it. Simply by virtue of being in it. Simply by being in it, you pass it. I looked at him and said, Robert, I wasn't sent here to pass you. I was sent here to teach you psychology, and you haven't learned psychology, and you flunk. But I've often thought since that time how many people consider Christianity to be a pipeline course, especially the Christians who are always wandering around spouting the doctrine of eternal security. Now that I'm in it, I'm safe. And by virtue of being in it, I'll pass. This scripture stands in stark contrast to that whole idea. The words of Jesus are very definite. Not everyone who seeks will enter. Look at this. Someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Now, Jesus is going to Jerusalem. What's going to happen in Jerusalem? He's going to be crucified, isn't he? So he's facing his own death. There's a short time to tell people the truth. He's always told people the truth, but now he's not beating around the bushes anymore. He's not taking his time. He has, his face, the Scripture says, is set toward Jerusalem. And you can imagine what it is, facing your own death and being constrained to go to your own death. And this guy asks him a basic intellectual question. Let's talk about the crowd. Hypothetically, are there just going to be a few that are saved? Now, how many people do you know that the first thing they want to talk about in religion is who gets saved and who doesn't? The favorite topic of all religious philosophy is, I'll give you the big word, soteriology. It is the study of salvation, who gets saved and who doesn't. And that's what this guy wants to talk about. Let's talk theoretically, you know. Tell me who gets saved and theoretically tell me the technicalities of how they get saved, how they get saved. Here's an observer looking in. And Christ turns on him, turns on him, says, it's a, it's a command, you, he's looking into his eyes, strive to enter by the narrow door. Now, the first thing he says is, if you're going to enter the kingdom of God, you've got to do it by yourself. You've got to do it by yourself. I know the mentality of religious excitement. But there's only one way to come to a knowledge of God, and that is by yourself. You won't do it by your family being a Christian. You can't do it by church. Northland Church is not going to heaven. How many people can get through a single door one at a time? It's endless, isn't it, the possibilities? How many people can get through a single door, a crowd at a time? Maybe one, maybe none. If your religion's conversion is in the context of a group, well, certainly I'll make it, I'm a Christian. Jesus would say to you, as he has said to the Jews, do not believe that because your father is Abraham, you're on the road. Do not believe that because you are in a group of Christians, you're on the road. I'm going to say some stuff this morning that's really going to disturb you. And I know the phone's going to ring tomorrow, but I'm not in on Monday. So wait for the middle of the week to complain to me. But I've got to tell you straight, this is some deeply disturbing stuff. Strive to enter by the narrow door for many, not just a few, many will seek to enter and will not be able. Now is that the story that you've gotten when you were growing up? Anytime that you just want God, all you got to do is seek God and you're in, right? What is the difference between people who really make it into the kingdom of God and those who have sought to make it into the kingdom of God, but something prevents them? Isn't that a good question? Let me define the word seek to you. This came up in the worship committee this week. You know, Zona said, well, I thought seeking, you know, was a very positive thing. Well, there are two forms of seeking in the Bible. Zeteo, which is the word, the Greek word for this, means to make an inquiry, to make a philosophical investigation. In other words, to line up all of the marbles so that if I want to participate, I know how. And I have enough energy to go and listen to someone tell me how to be saved and I will investigate that, and I will even, you know, begin to estimate on my own who's saved and who's not. You ever get in one of those conversations? That's a, that's a philosophical investigation. There is another Greek word for seeking, and that is ekzeteo, ekzeteo. And if you want to turn to Hebrews eleven six, you will find that word. Hebrews 11.6, remember this is the faith chapter, forgot my tabs this morning, without faith it is impossible to please him for he who comes to God, now listen to this, must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who seek him. That is, exeteo means to have a concentrated effort. That kind of seeking is the same thing as striving. So therefore, we are seeking, look at the words in Hebrews eleven six: 6, not to be saved. Here's the key. Not to be saved not to escape the punishments of hell. What are we seeking? God. Not what are we seeking, who are we seeking? The striving to come to intimacy with the person of God is what is answered and rewarded. Not just the mechanical, technical way to escape punishment. You see, there are two ways you can approach Christianity. One is to make it benefit you, and the other is to make it benefit God. The other, the the one says, God, what can you give me? And the other says, God, what can I give you? One says, God, how can you honor me? And the other says, God, how can I honor you? Because you are the one I want to love. You are the one I want to know. You are the one I want to please. You are the center of the universe, and I'm not. So Jesus looked at these folks. He said, he answered them. He answered to them. Looked at these folks, and he knew their question. And he knew their mechanics. And he knew their philosophy. And he said, you can go your whole life with that and not make it, not make it. There are many, many Christians in this world, and you and I are some of them, who believe that just saying yes at the end of a four spiritual laws book is what qualifies you for heaven, and that's not it. That is not it. I'm not talking about earning your salvation. I'm talking about seeking after a personal relationship with God that can only be revealed in the life and the death of Jesus Christ. We love to talk about the life, we don't love to talk about the death very much. We love to talk about all the goodies, but not the sacrifices. Jesus was on his way to the sacrifice. I read an article in the paper this week. Probably you did too. It was it was a horrendous headline. Students have both faith and sex. Did you read that article? Gallup poll. Student levels of faith is at an all-time high. 80% of the students on the campuses interviewed said religion was, listen, an important part of their life. Not they just believed in God, but religion was an important part of their life. But the subheading under that title was personal belief has no discernible effect on their behavior. Did you read that? Unbelievable. You know how you get that way? By believing there's some technical way to be saved without ever coming into a sacrificing, loving, surrendering relationship with Jesus Christ. That's how you get like that. That's how you can do that. I read another article. Some pastor got, uh, you probably read this, some pastor got up instead of, in front of the state legislature, started praying about abortion. (laughs) And they were outraged. Well, I can see their point. You know, preaching when you should be praying, that's that's a little bit of preaching. But listen, here's the line that killed me. They said, actually, in the paper, this prayer, which is usually ignored by all the legislators. Why are you going to pray if it's going to be ignored? See, that's, the horrendous part of it. Not that someone would, would misuse what is of God so much as that somebody who uses it and nobody avails themselves of it because it's just become a part of the furnishings. It's become a part of the ceremony. That's what he's talking about here. Those people are seeking, yeah, okay, let's have a prayer. That's nice. That's American. And God's saying, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let me get even more personal here. When we begin to seek after our Christianity that aids us or that we want to advertise in order to give ourselves credence, that's what he was doing. He was wanting, see the last line in here, the last line in here tells you who's asking the question. The last line says, And behold, some are last who will be first, and some are first who will be last. That equals the quote, he who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted. These people are looking to exalt themselves. Now let me get real personal with this. Every day, not every day, the days that I don't have to come in early, I have taken Josh. He has an early class at Lyman High School, Spanish class, and I get in this long line of cars that goes past Millway down 427 and we wait for the stoplights. And every day, several students turn on their left turn signal, get in the left-hand lane, jump all the way up there, and when it comes just right, they turn on their right turn signal and get back in the right lane, see? They jump the lane. Now do I take offense at that? Absolutely not. These people have no visage of... You know, Christianity, they're not advertising. I mean, they're just doing what the world does. If you can jump the line, jump the line. I don't take offense at that. But there's one van, a blue and white van with this lady and her kid in it that has on the front of this van, I pray every day. And every day, I watch this lady jump the line. (laughs) Left turn signal up 100, 200 yards, shooting in here. I want so badly, I've had fantasies about this, (laughs) to go to that van, rip off the front license plate, hold it in front of her face and say, you'll get this back when it starts to work. (laughs) See, there are ways that we work our Christianity to advantage us, to advertise, to give us some sort of credence. And really, it doesn't change our lives. It doesn't change our lives. How many of you, let me get very personal here, have a little fish on your business card or a little cross on your business card, and there's just a little something in you that says, that you know, that'll kind of give me a little credence. That'll, that'll kind of help me out. You know, the Christians will know what that means. And, and the others who really don't know anything about Christian symbolism will just think it's a clever little thing. And so, you know, I, maybe I can get a deal or two out of this because I have a Christian symbol on my card. But when it comes time, to estimate how long a certain job is going to do, you cut it short, knowing you, can't, you probably can't make it in that time. Or when it comes time to maybe tell a little white lie about something that went wrong, you go ahead and tell that little white lie. Or you know that you are skating on thin ice, maybe on faith, that your business is going to go on, and what happens? When you fail, where does the ill reputation go? It goes to Christ. You have torn him down. You have tried to use him as an advantage. And then when you don't come through, people say, is this how Christians are? Is this how Christians are? Let me admonish you. Get those things off your cards. Get them off. If somebody says to you after you've done a job for them, how is it that you're so caring? How is it that you went the extra mile? How is it that you were so scrupulous in your work? Then you can say, it's because I'm a follower of Christ. And some of his character has become part of my character. Then you can do him good. Then you can pay him homage. But to use him for your business advantage... Is wrong. Don't do that. It's wrong. You see, the essence of this scripture says that we are to seek Him for what He wants from us. Not to explain to Him how good we are and how much we deserve Him. I love this passage. Look at it. When, when the first time Jesus says, Wait a minute, I don't know who you are. The passage in verse 26, Then you will begin to say... See, they start on their defense, their own defense. And they get about two lines of it out. Well, well, Lord, we ate and drank in your presence here. And another thing was, you taught. Your teachings were very close to us. Why, Hunter taught on reading the red for two years. Your very words... And Jesus looks at him and says, I don't even know where you're from. We were never even close enough that you shared enough of your life with me for me to get to know you personally. And then it says, depart from me. See, that's, that's hell. Hell is not burning, awful, physical punishment It is the burning sensation we have inside when we can't be with those we love ever again. It's a personal separation. And you can see the character that they have when you note their reaction. The Bible says there is weeping and gnashing of teeth. And the first thought is, that's too bad, they're really hurting, but you take a look at that, and they're not hurting, they're angry. They're mad. They thought they had it, and Christ took it away. Who does he think he is? See? It's the type of gritting your teeth when you're ready for a fight. It's not the kind of, oh, I can't believe I did that. Oh, I can't. It's like, Come on, sucker. You can't do this to me. I've been a Christian 35 years of my life. I went to church. I paid my dues. And I did it so that I could get into heaven. That's the point. That's the point. When did we do it so that we could love God? When did we do it so that we could lift Him up? When were we willing to lay our lives down and let him do anything he wanted from us? When could we come to the time when we could say to him, Lord, if my being in heaven dishonors you in any way, I don't want to be there because I would rather spend an eternity in hell than to dishonor or stain who you are. I'm not talking theology here because your theology knows better than that. You know we are washed clean by the blood of the Lamb. I'm talking intention. Intention. Some people get real frustrated because we don't have more crosses around Northland. I mean, we've got one out on the street sign because nobody knew Bill Davenport was going to put it there. He just put it up. But you know... I don't know your feeling about crosses. My feeling is that they are way too automatically ceremonial. I would love for Northland to have a cross someday because it is appropriate for the character of the church. I'd love to have a cross on the wall someday because when you look at... At the vast majority of the body of believers in this church, you say that's how their lives are. They lay them down. They do anything for God. They pick up their cross daily. They do things that sacrifice themselves for God. That's how they are. And that's why that cross is up there, because it's a mirror of how they live their lives. I don't want to put a cross up because it's a Christian thing to do. I don't want to put a cross up because it's some magic plus sign on the wall. Only when I believe that our hearts are truly sacrificing because of the character of God living in us do I think a cross is appropriate for a church. One more story. The whole idea of heaven and hell is not the story of who had the right theory, but who had the heart that loved. That's the whole idea. That's the center of the universe. When you look at all of the other religions in the universe, you don't compare Jesus is better than Buddha, You begin to ask yourself, how can I know and love God? And do you know what I believe? This is going to make some of you mad. Never mind. It's not on the subject. I'll tell you later. That'll distract us, though. But the point is, not that we have reached the correct intellectual assumption. Salvation comes because we love God more than we love ourselves. We love His honor more than we love our favor. We love His sacrifice. Let me let me just show you before I. This is so cool. If you will turn to Second Timothy four, I love this. Second Timothy four. Let me show you. Second Timothy four, seven and 8. Now verse 7 has to do with striving. Has to do with striving. Has to do with agonizing over your own character and giving up your own stuff so that you can fight your own nature and fight the things of the world but keep the character of Christ. It says I have fought the good fight, I have finished the course, I have kept the faith. Now look at verse 8. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved, look at that, not getting into heaven, but loved his appearing. They can't wait to be with him and love him and crawl up into his arms. So you know what? You get a crown. What do you do with the crown? Turn to Revelation 4. This is one of the great ironies and summarizes the point. Verse 10. It talks about the elders, the mature, the leaders. Look what they do with their crowns. And they will cast their crowns before the throne saying worthy art thou our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power the people with the crowns won't wear them thou cast them down around the glassy sea because God and God only is the point of salvation There was once an intellectual pastor who had a very intellectual person in his congregation. His name was Ian McLaren, the pastor, Dr. Ian McLaren. And he wanted in the worst way to convert this great intellectual in his congregation. And so he devised a series of sermons called Overcoming the intellectual problems of Christianity. And he preached probably a half a dozen of these sermons. And the guy who was the intellectual in his congregation came to him and wanted to follow Christ. And the pastor was absolutely ecstatic, and he couldn't refrain himself. He said, which sermon was it? (laughs) This fellow looked at him questioning for a minute, and he said, Sermon? Oh, it wasn't any of the sermons. One day I was walking out of the church, and there was a poor lady. Didn't have very much, didn't have good clothes, didn't have good manners, didn't have good anything. She stumbled on the steps, and I, out of reaction, reached over to grab her and lift her up. And she looked into my eyes and she said, Do you love my Jesus? He's the most important thing in the world to me. At the time, he said, I didn't. But I looked at my life and I wanted to. And that's why I'm here. All of the intellectual defenses, all the intellectual problems you have with Christianity do not hold a candle to the desire to love God in Jesus Christ. That's what He calls us to and that's what heaven is no matter where we are or what time of eternity it is. Let me give you a moment before we take communion together to think about how you've looked at Christianity and to let you have just a few moments to pray, let me just tell you straight, if you've looked at Christianity as a way to better your life, toss that kind of Christianity out. If you've looked at it as a a way to, to escape hell, throw it overboard. If you look at it, as a way to have nice friends, get it out of your life. Every kind of religiosity that sticks to you like some accessory, let it go today. And determine in your heart that no matter what your eternal situation is, you want nothing more and nothing less than to love God. Is that simple. Would you do that? If you have some things that you would like to repent of and you feel like the Holy Spirit would have you come down and kneel down here and do it at His altar, I want you to do that during this time. Let's take a few moments for prayer and then we'll have the Lord's Supper together. By the way, if there are some of you who have never in your life made a personal commitment to love God and you want to through the life of Jesus Christ today, share with Him that you're a sinner. Recognize that fact. And then share with Him that you know that He loved you so much He died on the cross for you. And ask if you can trade places. Invite him into your life and say, Lord, make of my life whatever you want it to be. I cannot get to heaven on my own, but I just want to love you. And any part of your sacrifice that you want to give to me out of our relationship, I will cheerfully accept and love you back. Let's pray.